Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Welcome to Contextualizing Textiles. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Kelly, a natural dyer, dye grower, insect admirer, and owner of Bedhead Fiber. Bedhead Fiber is a declaration of adoration for plants, fungi, natural fibers, farmers, and the slow process. They believe in the power of plants, the necessity of healthy ecosystems, and supporting farmers. Hey, Kelly. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hi. Can you start out by telling us about your background and sharing how you found your way into the world of textiles and farming? Yeah. Um, I kind of feel like I have a little bit of a different sort of background um, for at least most knitters or crocheters or weavers. Um, I actually started out not knowing how to do any of that. Um, My grandmother was a very, very great sewer. Um, She made all of her clothes. She made like her homewares and things like that. And I mean, I think I made like a little Amish dress with her once um, because she was from uh, Lancaster County. And um, after that, it was one of those things where they kind of forced you to do it. So you never really wanted to do it. But (laughs) um, (laughs) I never really got into it until I actually started farming. Um, After I graduated college, I sort of realized i didn't feel like I had any practical skills. Um, So Mm. I thought about how to go, um, like what the foundation of everything is. And it really comes back to farming. Um, Without food, we can't exist really. Um, So I started farming abroad. I did that WOOF program, which is the, I think they changed the name, but it's Willing Workers on Organic Farms. Um, And so I, did that for six months throughout Europe. Um, and I actually started in Greece and I ended up on a farm in Greece with a German woman who ran the farm. Um, and she was a sock knitter. She just loved knitting socks. And I thought, you know, how amazing would it be to just knit your own clothes? So I, she actually taught me how to knit, um, did not come easy to me. Um, I had to go to like the flea market, the weekly flea market and pick up this really, really terrible lime green acrylic yarn. I think probably it was full of moths. Um, (laughs) but you know, we would sit and knit and you just sit and knit out in the field because where else are you going to sit and knit? And it just stuck with me and like fiber does it kind of just snowballs into other things and then I got interested in spinning and um eventually interest in dyeing came along because I once I finished farming I moved to Eugene Oregon um and the Willamette Valley in Oregon has this just incredible bounty of food and foraging opportunities um and so I learned how to forage there um for mushrooms and things like that. And I was also, uh, I belonged to a CSA, uh, where I would get just an overabundance of food and 
even between my partner and I, we couldn't finish the box for one person. It was very generous. And so I felt really sad about all of this food waste coming from farmers and learning about sustainability and everything like that. So I actually looked into what I could do with these food wastes besides just composting it. Um, and I found out about natural dyeing with um, primarily with things like black beans and cabbage and onion skins, kind of the things that are the first things that people naturally dye with. Um, and then I met a wonderful couple who was incredibly uh, supportive of foraging and of me foraging. And they taught me how to find mushrooms. And I started dyeing with mushrooms and lichens. Um, and that's how I started dyeing with raw dye stuffs, which is basically like unprocessed uh, materials. Um, mm. And so then when I came back to Seattle, I actually started working for Botanical Colors, and that's where I learned how to dye with extracts. Um, and so Botanical Colors is a natural dye studio and business um, based out of Ballard, and Kathy Hattori is the owner, and she's wonderful. And I learned how to, you know, match specific Pantone colors with natural dyes for um, clothing designers and things like that. So that sort of learning, having a foundation in the raw dye stuffs was really great. And then having that sort of compounded extract knowledge was really important um, to sort of further my um, abilities in natural dye. So it got to a point where I wanted to start dyeing my own colors um, just because you get a lot of the same colors um, and it was mostly focused on fabric. And as a knitter and a spinner, I wanted to focus on yarn. Um, so I kind of had, when I was in Eugene, I kind of had a situation where I was underemployed. So I sort of had a little Etsy and would sell skeins here and there. And I kind of decided as a commitment to myself to start Bedhead Fiber. Um, I was raised with a focus on things that I should be doing, like should be having a career. I should be getting married and having children. And, you know, I never really wanted any of those things. It came down to it. And so I never really committed to anything as far as career goes or hobbies or anything like that. So bedhead fiber was sort of a, a commitment to myself in my progression as a person. Um, and it's continued to be that. And I've learned a lot about myself. Um, and I never thought that having a business would do that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, on your site, it says, um, Bedhead Fiber is a declaration of adoration for plants, fungi, natural fibers, farmers, and the slow process. So can you kind of speak to the ways in which Bedhead Fiber is supporting that idea? Yeah, um, it's definitely taken me a while to see, without sounding too cheesy, but the journey of Bedhead Fiber and myself as a person, you know, so textiles take time <laughs> uh, and they should take time. Honestly, there are things from the earth or they should be. Um, 
you know, so growing indigo and processing indigo takes an entire year and growing wool and processing wool takes a year or more. I think that's why I identify so much with your work and the things that you're doing and um, especially the statement about, you know, having adoration for plants, fungi, natural fibers and farmers and so practices Mm -hmm. because it's such a system, you know, creating a textile when you understand, like me thinking about how I'm going to inoculate my soil plays into Mm -hmm. the the quality of the plant that I'm growing, which feeds into the Mm -hmm. quality of the product I'm producing, which feeds into the quality of the textile. Right, right. And I mean, even if you think about the history of plants, like you were talking about with indigo and cotton, it's not happy. You know, a lot of plants are, have caused a lot of pain to a lot of people. Um, Mm. And so having sort of this superficial, happy view of plants, specifically indigo and cotton is... Um, doing an injustice to a lot of people and the history. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that we can ignore that past history, you know? Um, and so if, the more you know about the things that you do, the more time it takes, <laughs> you know, that's the slow <laughs> process. Growing indigo takes, you know, once it gets started, it, it takes, you know, a season, but processing it and then knowing about how to create a vat and maintain a vat and everything like that takes time and processing linen takes time with flax and processing wool. The sheep have to grow it, you know, so I don't know. Everything takes time. I think that we live in such a fast paced world that uh, telling people about natural dyes and natural fibers for when they don't know about it, it's just kind of like, oh, I don't understand why it takes so long. Um, you have to sort of explain that everything needs to be thought about um, and cared for. You know, if you mm-hmm. have bad soil, you're not going to have a happy plant and then you're not going to have, you know, a happy farmer. <laughs> it just it, all, Everything ties into each other, you know. Yeah. You're not going to mm-hmm. get good colors. You're not going to get a good skein of yarn. So it's all connected. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you forge a lot of the materials that you dye with. Do you grow um, your dye materials as well? I do grow some. I do live in an apartment um, with a really nice garden in the back. So it's like Seattle, typical fashion, it's on a hill. So I have a lot of uh, things in pots and things like that. And I actually did grow, I I would like to thank my farming time to learn how to be as efficient and possible with, as possible with planting. Um, But I did grow a lot of the dyes that I used. Um, Indigo, I, there's no way that I could grow as much as I need. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm, I had, mm -hmm. I think I had like four harvests and I got about 50 grams of indigo. Um, so it's definitely growing and processing your own indigo definitely adds to the appreciation of how much work and labor goes into it. Um, yeah. So, um, but I, yeah, whatever I don't grow, I either forage for 
or there's a really lovely community of foragers here in Seattle. And I'm sure in other parts where foraging is popular. Um, and they, there's like a trade, uh, what is it called? It's like fungus trade, dye fungus trade group on Facebook or something like that. And so, Oh wow. Um, really? It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So actually one of the main educators on, um, mushroom dyes Alyssa Allen started it and she's really wonderful and helps with education and helps with identifying and people trade things like honey or jam for dye mushrooms and it's really sweet (laughs) wow that is super sweet yeah I'm actually really unfamiliar with the process of mushroom dyeing I've never Mm -hmm. done it myself can you kind of talk about maybe the chemical process or just how you extract the dye and what kind of colors you get? So, I mean, plant dyes and mushroom dyes are mostly similar. I have to make sweeping generalizations because there's, you know, always the little oddball that has to be used with a certain way. But when people ask me how you natural dye, if you strip away all of the Um, variables like pH and temperature and time, which can make natural dyeing like a never-ending aspect of growth and learning. It's basically like brewing tea. So you Mm. put in the dye stuff and then you let it heat up and then usually colors emerge. So it's similar with mushrooms. Um, There are certain ones that, you know, require other processes and there's a really great mushroom book, um, The Rainbow uh, Beneath My Feet. That's great. Uh, talks a lot about processes and different mordants like um, aluminum sulfate and tin, which I don't know. I'm still on the fence about tin, but um, a lot of lichens need tin um, and a lot of lichens need an ammonia soaking bath. So that's mm. a different process than just boiling. You actually soak it for uh, a couple months to a year to get a, like a vibrant fuchsia, which is pretty cool. So, I mean, plants are amazing. The fact that you can get fuchsia or blue or red out of a plant and mushroom is, I don't know. I, I've been doing this That's for mind blowing. quite a bit. <laughs> and every time I just like see something like a matter red, I'm just like, oh, this came from a root. It's, I don't know. It never gets old to me. So, <laughs> yeah. And I was actually, I was talking to someone the other day about natural dyes and I was like, there's a brilliance in the colors that come from plants that cannot be found in synthetic dyes. Like the way matter looks, it's just so beautiful. It's alive. And indigo, it's like, you know, the blue, the hue is just so deep and complex. Yeah. And it's really funny. I dye a lot of my partner's shirts for work in indigo. Um, Because he has a uniform of blue, which is very convenient for me. Um, (laughs) And it's funny how, you know, his coworkers who know nothing about natural dyeing, they're like, oh, Kelly dyed that one for you, didn't they? And it's just like, oh, they can know too. (laughs) So I think that's great that people who don't even understand natural dyes can see the difference. Yeah. mm -hmm. Do you have like a, a specific plant? Or mushroom that you enjoy using the most? I mean, no, they're all amazing. I mean, onion skins continue to astound because you just, 
you think about it as like a food waste who needs an onion skin and you can get it anywhere and yield gorgeous yellows to golds to like ochre colors and I mean the magic of indigo has been talked about for years and we could probably talk about it for years more um I I don't know every time I die with something new I just am amazed and like avocado pits have pink and black beans are purple and you know, a lot of people give huff about things that aren't light fast, um, and they get to be kind of sticklers about it. And I think that you have to take in consideration that everything has a limit. Like plants have a limit. You can't expect them to last forever. Um, but you know, it, I feel like the sticklers sometimes get in the way of exploring the fun and amazement of natural dyes you know it's like as long as you're not a business selling those products that are not light fast or at least if you tell people about how to care for it properly that's different but you know like having a fun time dyeing easter eggs with your kids with the purple cabbage is amazing and it's fun and it should be so i don't know i think natural dyes are wonderful because they are so approachable um and I'm very grateful that it's becoming more popular. Um, but like with anything, it has limitations. Mm. Yeah, I, I I agree. And I understand that fully because I think that if people were to think about... I, I, like, I think that the way that natural textiles work, work the way that they do because they are a part of a more sustainable system. So it's like we have these ideas and these demands that we have gotten accustomed to in our clothing system because of the use of synthetics and the stress that people have kind of put on these farmers and these production companies. And so we think like, no, I want to wash my clothes once a week every year and I want them to stay the same color but when you put those limitations on natural clothes and natural fibers it's not possible and it's not possible because it's it's not a good thing that's not something that really should be happening right and I mean a lot of natural fibers are like antimicrobial so they actually don't even need to be washed as much but that's Mm -hmm. that's a whole nother conversation Well, I mean, with denim, it's it's the same thing. Like, um, yeah. you, you're supposed to wear your denim multiple times before you wash them. Yeah. But I was going to say it's like equating it with like the slow food movement, you know, like once you accept, you know, the slow food principles, you're not going to go to your farmer based in Seattle, Washington and ask for bananas. You know, it's just not, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Seattle and also the amazing mushroom trade-off community that you have access to. Can you kind of talk about what your surrounding textile community is like? Yeah. um, I mean, Seattle's grown and changed so much. um, And it used to be quite a big hub for textiles and knitting and things like that. Um, I mean, Seattle is on Duwamish land and it's important to recognize that heritage of weaving and fiber making and dyeing and things like that. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of communities specifically like Ballard who had a lot of um, Norwegian families come, I guess, 
colonize the land. Um, and they introduced a lot of uh, knitting and uh, traditions in that end. Um, currently, I think Seattle is getting known to be sort of more startup-y um, with more tech and we have our Microsoft and Starbucks and Boeing. And so we do have quite a bit of larger textile companies like North Face and Patagonia and um, Filson. It's a little bit smaller, but a lot of them do, you know, create their clothings from abroad and factories abroad and things like that. But there are a lot of, I, I like to focus on the smaller ones because I feel like the smaller companies and businesses are more approachable. They're more human. Um, there's a organization called Muses, which actually helps refugees and women who come here um, and teach them how to make clothing and have it be a job for them that, you know, enables them to make a living. Um, Evernew, which is a new-ish company that actually created a way to recycle clothing. Um, mm. And they've actually partnered up with large companies like Levi's and Pepsi, which I think is interesting. But, um, you know, they're actually taking textile waste, sorting it and recycling it. And that's amazing. It's exactly what we need. Um, and then Eileen Fisher was actually founded here. Um, and they have an incredible program, Eileen Fisher Renew, um, which actually mm. they accept back any Eileen Fisher clothing. They um, mend it, they dye it. Botanical Colors actually dyes a lot of their clothes that are stained. Um, and then they sell it back at a discounted price, which, you know, removes so much textile waste from landfills that, I don't know, it gives me goosebumps. <laughs> Eileen Fisher is awesome. Like <laughs> So amazing. Like, she didn't have to do that, and she did it, and she's making a huge impact. Mm -hmm. And her business is already so sustainable. Yeah. She's definitely one of the designers that I look up to. Yeah. Do you also work with communities and create workshops? You know, I did a couple workshops and classes and I I didn't feel um, called to do it anymore um, based on a few things, but mostly because I know that natural dyeing has a lot of history in many different cultures, but I didn't feel like I could do it, do it justice by telling the histories behind it. Um, it felt mm. like I was monetizing off of other people's cultures that weren't my own. Um, you know, when you have a two hour workshop, who wants to spend an hour listening about history, you know, um, which is unfortunate. Um, but it's something that I decided and I feel better for not doing it. Wow. That's super interesting. Thanks. <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> it's a very interesting perspective. And it is, you know, it, it is something to sort of talk about because there is this resurgence and in interest in natural dyeing, especially yeah. on Instagram. You know, everybody's yeah. sort of like coming out with dye tutorials and like blogs and, you know, doing things and they're not really contextualizing it. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, which I think is important. 
mm-hmm. because so many people don't know the history. So right. it's very, it's a very interesting uh, statement. Um, it's also really great that you're thinking in that Thank way. You. Yeah. I mean, we have to do what's best for us um, in regards to what it makes us feel like, you know, I never want to say that no one should do it. Um, that's not my place to say that, but for me, it didn't feel right. Um, didn't feel right to, you know, the cultures where natural dyeing still is a main facet of their income. Um, it is part of their spirituality. It just, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel great doing it. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So I guess this, this question kind of aligns with that statement as a natural textile artist and designer creator, what role do you feel that you play in the larger, greater textile and fashion community? I mean, that is a big question. Um, I still see myself as this like kind of goofy plant nerd who's just sitting in her studio dyeing yarn a lot of the time. So I don't really Mm -hmm. see myself in this grand scope of being as huge as, you know, Eileen Fisher. Like I'm, I don't plan on ever being like Eileen Fisher in that way. Um, I don't, I don't know, maybe that's like self-sabotage, but, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, I, I'm always been one of those people who loves the concept of like paying it forward and like small things are important and small things can be life-changing and, you know, the more I talk about natural dyes with people who may not even be into textiles, the more that they think about where their clothes came from, you know, and just my presence and everyone's presence in the world as natural dyers and textile advocates, you know, the better, you know, because then we learn more about fast fashion and maybe someone won't buy that, you know, and I, you know, I think the overall main concern for me is just overconsumption. And I think that I can't, you know, it's not my place to judge someone for buying fast fashion because there's a lot of issues, um, about accessibility for money. You know, I can't expect everyone to pay for my products because they are more expensive. Um, which is one of the one of the huge problems in my own business um, that I fully recognize. But, you know, the more people know and learn about the countless issues with textiles and dyes and landfill, like textile waste and toxic dyes, maybe, I don't know, make small impact for one person, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. wearing the same five dresses all the time, you know. <laughs> Maybe that'll make yeah. an impact where someone will be like, I can wear the same outfit in the same week, you know, which, you know, 10 years ago, I never would have thought about doing. But right. it's all about, yeah. it's, it's like the little choices. I think the little choices are what make big impacts. That's awesome. Do you have any new projects that you're working on that you want to talk about or let our listeners know? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, there's been a lot of talk about racism in the fiber community, um, primarily the knitting community, and it's incredible that it's happening. It's sad that it's only now happening, but um, I 
for a while, you know, like I said previously, I the biggest thing that I struggle with is not having my products be accessible to those who, you know, have are most greatly impacted by the drawbacks of fast fashion and um, toxic dyes and things like that. So um, as a way to make it my products more accessible to those communities, I started a sponsorship program where um, people who go to my website can sponsor um, someone. So basically uh, apply funds towards the account, um, towards either education, um, seeds, or yarn. So um, I'm actually really excited about it. I, you know, I don't know. I don't really know how to talk about it very well because I'm so excited about it. But (laughs) Um, You're doing well. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, But, you know, the marginalized communities that don't have access to a lot of these things are, you know, like people of color, people who are low income, the LGBTQ and disabled folk. They exist in the textile community and the fiber community, and they are active participants and we need to listen to them and they need to have access to these things. Um, so that's part of what the sponsorship is helping with. So, um, so it's only, I only started it in February, so it's only been about two months, but I, you know, have already, not me, but we, people who have funded it, um, have already sent two people to an indigo dyeing class with Abubakar Fofana um, I've sent dye seeds. I've sent yarn to sponsors, and it is amazing. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had those opportunities. Wow, that is that is awesome. And yeah. I've seen Abu Bakar Fafana's work, and he's amazing. He's super talented. He's yeah, he's pretty incredible. Yeah the the program that you're working on it also it's so interesting. And I'm kind of curious of like, where are the spaces that you have been able to find textile artists or weavers or knitters of color? Like where are these conversations happening? Yeah, um, a lot of the conversations are happening on Instagram. Um, They they started with a a blog post, which I'm you know, I don't want to credit the person for starting this conversation, but the blog post was what highlighted it and amplified it. Um, but there's been a lot of uh, people of color who have done a lot of work in assessing what was problematic about the post. And subsequently, a lot of things that happened after that that were awful um, without... I mean, this is could be a whole nother podcast and they've actually done podcast. Um, yeah. So they started a blog um, called Unfinished Object um, with Grace, Anna, Karina, Ocean and Sukrita, um, who were many of the people, some of the many of the people who contributed to this conversation. Um, and that's a great place to look and read up about it. Um, I also have some on my Instagram and highlighted stories and links to them as well. But yeah, it's an important conversation. And I think that people of color are finally being heard and finding themselves and finding each other in this community. And I 
I think that is incredible and long overdue. Yeah, definitely. Given the history and the contribution, it's, you know, yeah, it's for yeah. me, it's, it's been healing. It's been very healing, very, I've learned a lot and I've, yeah. I feel much closer to my, my ancestors. So yeah, that's, amazing. that's awesome. Um, so can you tell people where to go on social media and the internet to find your work and to find the links to some of those websites? Yeah. So my website is bedheadfiber.com. Um, and that is also my Instagram handle. Um, and I welcome any emails at hello at bedheadfiber.com. Great. So one last really heavy question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, before you go, um, yeah. do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? So I, once I started snowballing in fiber arts, I had to put a firm boundary on weaving um, just because I live in a tiny apartment and I could foresee like 10 looms everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have any advice for weavers except for like keep on keeping on because weaving is incredible and so technical and I really am amazed at how intricate and complicated it is. Um, for textile enthusiasts and fiber artists and natural dyers I would just suggest just absorbing everything that's out there. Um, if you find a nugget of gold, there's going to be more nuggets of gold down that stream. Um, you know, that's kind of how I ended up where I am right now. Someone who didn't know how to sew or knit or weave or dye or anything like that. You know, you just got to follow what's interesting to you. Um, and you'll open a lot of doors and meet a lot of people and your life will change. Awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you so much yeah. for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap. I really enjoyed speaking with Kelly and I highly suggest you follow her on social media as well as support some of the amazing projects that she's working on. You can find the links to her work as well as to some of the blogs mentioned in this episode at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 58. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Cameron Taylor Brown about the exhibit she's curating called Material Meaning, A Living Legacy of Annie Albers. Tune in next week for that episode. And until next time, happy weaving! Happy weaving!